Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back once again to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. If you didn't catch us last week, we are on week two of two weeks of being away from one another, being unable to uh, get together to record a new episode of the podcast. And so this is a second lecture that uh, Dr. Boot brought. This one's to a group of medical professionals on the question of what are the essential components of a healthy society and answering questions like how does scripture define and understand the concept of health. I hope you enjoy it. We look forward to being back next week with a brand new episode. That uh, I wanted to look at a particular cultural issue right now and try and apply the uh, non-reductionist worldview of the scriptures of the Christian view of reality to a particular uh, medical cultural challenge and think about how the gospel of Christ, in fact, relates to all of that. So the title of my workshop is Why the Gospel of Christ is Essential to the Health of Our Society, Uh, and looking at this through the lens of the non-reductionist view of Scripture. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 12, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. He has made everything beautiful in its time. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil, for this is God's gift to man. So scripture is clear that life is a gift. Gathering to worship the living God and celebrate the sacraments, to enjoy table fellowship with family and friends, to be free to take pleasure in our vocation and work, these are all God's gifts to man, according to the Bible. These gifts are not granted by the state or any human authority, but by God himself, because they are fundamental to what it means to be a human being. As such, they form uh, part of the foundation of pre-political rights, essential for a healthy society. These pre-political gifts from God, which are our uh, basic rights of what it means to be a human being, are essential for a healthy society. Now, during the past 12 months, many of these gifts have been lost. Uh, Lives, livelihoods, treasured human relationships and historic liberties. Some were taken from us suddenly, others have been taken away gradually. But the past year has highlighted more than ever the urgent need for Christians to think about the whole issue of communal human health through scripturally informed eyes. If we're not to lose perspective amidst all of the claims and the threat assessments and the emotive rhetoric of a tax-funded public health industry. Foundationally, the Bible is abundantly clear that all life belongs to God, 
is in his hands and is to be lived on his terms. As such, we are not to lawlessly take innocent life through abortion or euthanasia, topics that we discussed in our previous session. And at the same time, scripture does not make the prevention of all death at any cost a moral absolute for human society. What it does tell us is that obedience to Christ is essential for human well-being and human flourishing. So the first question, abundant life or abundant controls? Jesus taught that he came to give life in all its fullness. He says, I've come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. John 10 verse 10. Now this fullness concerns the fulfillment of our created purpose as image bearers. That's what this fullness of life means, to fulfill our created purpose as image bearers of God. By virtue of our creation as beings who respond to God and his law word, if you think back to our plenary sessions, we are inescapably cultural beings as well, forming human culture as communities in obedience or disobedience with the beautiful materials of creation which were made through Christ and are held together by his powerful word. This is what living life is all about. It is what it means to be human. The idea of health, as we've seen, presupposes restoration to a norm. Uh, healing presupposes restoration to a norm, to a proper functioning. And yet in recent months, the numerous arts, life arts, of human society and culture, for example, pursuing a profession, socializing, feasting, musical concerts, sports, friendships, travel, vacations, collaborating, and much, much more. These gifts that make life worth living, including freedom to make a livelihood, which is guaranteed in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, have been set aside in the name of health. The consequences of doing so have obviously been very serious. As one example, job insecurity and unemployment have long been recognized as a primary factor in depression, substance abuse, suicide, and premature death. And in regard to making a living, the UN has now predicted an additional 420 million people will face abject poverty due to the looming recessions triggered by lockdowns ostensibly directed toward public health. The reality is that a system where public policy assumes a totalizing influence and control over all spheres of life is a secularized vision of society that has been an influential part of the modern world's political landscape since the French Revolution. It always has, it always, it has always been the nature of ideology to trend totalitarian, overriding God's word, overriding people's choices and their liberties to practice the life arts, replacing them frequently in the name of health and safety with scripted and coercive beliefs and behaviors which militate against abundant life. In Jeffrey Tucker's insightful article, uh, which was called Lockdown, the New Totalitarianism, he writes this, and I quote, 
This year has seen a new ideology with totalitarian tendencies. That ideology is called lockdownism. Its vision of hell is a society where pathogens run freely. Its heaven is a society managed entirely by medical technocrats whose main job is the suppression of all disease. The mental focus is the viruses. The anthropology is to regard all human beings as, as little more than sacks of deadly pathogens. This year has been the first test of lockdownism. It included the most intrusive, comprehensive controls of human beings and their movements in recorded history. It has a maniacal focus on one life concern, the presence of pathogens, to the exclusion of almost every other concern. The least of the concerns is human liberty. All of these must bow to the technocratic discipline of the disease mitigators. Constitutions and limits on government do not matter. It is a wild vision of a one-dimensional world in which the whole of life is organized around disease avoidance, end quote. So the result is this one-dimensional di one reductionist view of human health and society. It's a reductionistic view of health and society. Sinead Murphy, a philosopher at Newcastle University in England, has pointed out that when life is reduced to simply life or death, she says the arts of life are lined up for censure on the side of death. And what is called life is simply non-death, a technical survival program, end quote. Such stark reductionism of life to biotic non-death destroys all qualification and nuance of life quality and pushes away the deepest and most important questions about human purpose, well-being, and what makes life worth living. As Murphy goes on to write, and I quote, she says, far from being only non-death, life, real human life, unfolds in the face of death comprising just the right amount of remembering death to give it its rhythm and urgency, and just the right amount of forgetting death to give it its joy and purpose. Life, real human life, is not life or death. It is life and death, or as the philosophers say, life toward death, end quote. It was actually C.S. Lewis who grasped this very same vital point in his penetrating essay on the dangers of the welfare state when he wrote, and I quote, I care far more about how humanity lives than how long. Progress for me means increasing goodness and happiness of individual lives. For the species, as for each man, mere longevity seems to me a contemptible ideal. End quote. So from the biblical standpoint, the doctrine of life as mere disease avoidance is actually threatening to real human life and true society as it's revealed in the Lord Jesus. Neither Jesus nor the apostles socially distanced themselves from the needy or sick. Neither did they hide from disease or push away people as potential carriers of pathogens. Rather, they ministered life and healing to people, 
touching and healing even the lepers and thereby pointing to our calling and the reality of the kingdom of God, a pattern that informed the Christian tradition in the face of disease ever since. You can look and study how the Puritans responded to the plague or how the early church responded to plague and pathogens and viruses and how it was an opportunity to show the life of Christ and, and uh, be an example of what the gospel of the kingdom really means. In scripture, Christ is actually called the great physician because of his healing of the whole person, a sign and symbol of the coming healing and restoration of all creation. Restored society is called the kingdom of God. Now, in the absence of that view, instead of care and compassion and healing and restoration being the goal of medicine in terms of the presence of that kingdom, technocratic planning in terms of an alternate view of human society becomes central to life. And here, public convenience, medical and social engineering and utopian political objectives for human populations put medicine into their service. Instead of a focus on care for individual patients and their needs, scientific models of the future become the new prophetic word which will govern our treatment of people. One danger is that today a form of scientific prophecy forms the basis of a dangerous claim to a special knowledge necessary to demand the right to control and plan people's lives, whether through abortions, euthanasia, surgical and chemical interventions in sex change procedures, or unprecedented lockdowns of healthy populations. The present transformation of Canada and other Western nations into medical technocracies following the bidding of cadres of experts means that many politicians themselves have actually become subservient to scientists. And actually, I think we see this, quite frankly, uh, in Ontario and in much of Canada, where politicians, the elected officials, are terrified of going against any of the advice coming from their tables of technocrats. C.S. Lewis warned with a kind of uncanny prescience, and I quote, now I dread specialists in power because they are specialists speaking outside their special subjects. Government involves questions about the good of man and justice and what things are worth having at what price. And on these, a scientific training gives a man's opinions no added value. Let the doctor tell me I shall die unless I do so and so. But whether life is worth having on those terms is no more a question for him than for any other man. On just the same ground, I dread government in the name of science. That is how tyrannies come in, end quote. Now, historically, a key figure, a key feature, I should say, in the totalitarian impulse is the importance of enforcing isolation for the purposes of control, not human health and well-being. In the present circumstances, the logic of deducing almost an endless lockdown policy from scientific premises with a myopic focus on a single objective has the effect of isolating people from each other by destroying relationships, not just with other people, 
but with the diversity, complexity and beauty of creation itself. Authoritarian objectives can only succeed where people have been isolated against each other, are suspicious and distrustful of one another, and view other people as a threat to their health and well-being. It is this breakdown of meaningful relationships with other people and the diversity of the real world that causes radical isolation. Basic to human well-being is the power to act and a healthy society, a legacy of the Christian gospel, requires the freedom to be together and to act together. The freedom to be together and to act together. That's the legacy of the Christian gospel in a healthy society. In Hannah Arendt's landmark work on totalitarianism, she notes that isolation's hallmark, and I quote, is impotence insofar as power always comes from men acting together, acting in concert. Isolated men are powerless by definition. Isolation and impotence, that is the fundamental inability to act at all, have always been characteristic of tyrannies. Isolation is that impasse into which men are driven when the political into which men are driven when the political sphere of their lives, where they act together in pursuit of a common concern, is destroyed. End quote. So let's think just for a moment about health, wholeness, and the scriptural world and life view. It is not that this present virus created a new problem. Plagues, disease, and epidemics have been ubiquitous throughout all human history. It is not the novelty of disease that created the present crisis in understanding the nature of a healthy society. Rather, the lockdown of life has exposed a fragility and weakness in Christian thought in the 21st century. Few people have actually raised serious questions about the authoritarianism on display or the devastating health consequences that the indef indefinite mass lockdown of healthy populations is creating, which, by the way, it's very doubtful we would have ever done uh, had this, this not been modelled by the Chinese, and which goes against every pandemic preparedness plan and strategy that the provinces of Canada have ever had. What can account for this change? What can account for the collapse of a distinctly Christian response? I think the decline of a distinctly Christian world and life view is playing a very crucial role in the current circumstances. In 1975, the noted British evangelical Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a medical doctor actually, said in his address to the Westminster Conference, and I quote, the Christian is not only to be concerned about personal salvation. It is his duty to have a complete view of life as taught in the scriptures. As far as the Christian is concerned, and that is what we are interested in now, we are not to be concerned only about personal salvation. We must have a worldview. Late modern evangelicalism has struggled really to move past the idea that the gospel concerns little more than personal salvation and ecclesiastical life and dogma, when in fact it concerns the kingdom of God in every aspect of life and the healing of human society in terms of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. 
Recognizing the vital role and function of a world and life view, that is the religious root of all our thought, requires relinquishing the myth of human neutrality and autonomy. No community is religiously neutral. Our ideas about life, about health, about society, are a natural development from our religious view of the world. We can fully expect that in times of cultural pressure, such as plague and war, what is truly inner people, religiously, is going to manifest itself. If the Christian worldview has steeply declined, we cannot expect that our society will be governed by Christian principles. Nor can we expect that the biblical understanding of abundant life, which includes the flourishing of the arts of life, and a realistic expectation of life toward death, where real human life is more than just survival, will be actually maintained. Jesus taught our lives are in the hands of God. And that enables us to properly evaluate risk and to walk in life-enhancing freedom. Certainly, the temporary quarantine of seriously, infectiously ill people does have scriptural warrant. We see that in Leviticus 13. But there is no basis for the quarantine of the healthy to keep them safe. And quite frankly, it isn't the job of civil government to keep me safe from the flu, from a cold, from coronavirus, or even tuberculosis or anything else. It's not the task of civil government to keep me safe. We don't know when our time will come, according to the word of God, since death is not in our hands. So scripture commands us to rejoice in life and enjoy it as God's gift. Its quality is more important than its quantity. That doesn't mean we act irresponsibly. It doesn't mean we cannot uh, evaluate risk and take personal responsibility. But it does mean that in the Bible, life's quality is a lot more important than mere longevity. As such, human and societal health is not centered in illusions of developing near omniscient and omnipotent capacity for preventing any bad things from happening. But in knowing that in the midst of life, God is our refuge and shield. Psalm 3, Psalm 4 are clear about this. We cannot add a single hour to our lives by worry and fear of disease or disaster. And to live in such fear is disobedience and sin, according to Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 27 following. All the days appointed for us as Christians are written in God's book, virus or no virus. Read Psalm 139. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. For your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. The only thing actually in scripture that is ultimately unsafe is disobeying God. That's truly unsafe. Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 22 says, but if you do not obey the Lord your God 
by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your descendants will be cursed and your land's produce, the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has exterminated you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will afflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight and mildew. These will pursue you until you perish. We see then that God is no buttercup when it comes to dealing with sin and rebellion. The one thing that's truly unsafe is disobeying God and going beyond his word. For the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus in his noted novel, The Plague, disease brings us into confrontation with the absurdity of life where virtue in the face of sickness is nothing more than man's effort to create meaning for himself. In scripture though, as we saw in the first two plenary lectures, creation is meaning. In terms of the plan and purpose of God in relating all things and directing all things, and disease actually forces us to confront the reality of our fall into sin and the groaning of creation, which points us toward the full inheritance of redemption through Jesus Christ. All seasons of trial remind us to value life as God's gift to man, to take pleasure in our cultural calling, to rejoice in all the beautiful arts of life and rest in God's assurance that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Thank you very much for listening. It's passed down as a prophecy Every year about this time